This is Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. Here you get to listen in on the stimulating lectures of thoughtful and engaging Christian leaders from across the country, like extended TED Talks from a Christian perspective. Today's talk is from David Zoll, director of Mockingbird Ministries. So many people uh, had stories to tell me about the, the food stuff that we were talking about yesterday that I felt like I needed to share this with you. It's an onion headline. Woman spirals into vortex of self-doubt after Trader Joe's cashier does not compliment any of her selected items. The article says, the woman at the register next to me is practically drowning in accolades from store employees, but my cashier hasn't said a thing, not even about the olive tapenade hummus or chocolate babka, and I just don't understand what I did wrong, said the self-conscious uh, Susan Coleman, who described bottling out with deep shame when the cashier scanned her entire cart of frozen appetizers, wine, and assorted baked goods without uttering a single word of praise. I thought that was funny. Couldn't, and you guys like to laugh so much that I felt like we, um, I couldn't resist uh, adding in before I get to my final stuff, the seculosity of vacation. Because we've all been on the vacation this week. And in a lot of ways, vacation is wonderful when it's vacation. Uh, and, but the American uh, impetus sometimes is to optimize your vacation to stress out about how much relaxation you can get, and to uh, also to approach vacation as an outside-in, uh, from an outside-in perspective, the same way we approach food and work. And Saturday Night Live earlier this year made did one of the, I think, the best skits they've ever done when Adam Sandler hosted. And if you haven't seen it, we're going to watch it right now because it gets at what we're talking about with the enoughness, the righteousness, the sense of needing to engineer your own uh, value and um, goodness through external means. Here we go. Culture, history, spaghetti. These are the things of a boot country called Italia. Hello, I'm Joe Romano of Romano Tours. For two generations, my family has provided high-quality tours of Italy to people from all over the world, but mostly Long Island and Jersey. We saw all of Italy in a bus, okay? We ate every day incredible. Yeah, I got to look at the Pope, and he even told me happy birthday. Thanks, Thanks Romano Tours. Explore the old country with our award-winning 10-day vacation packages. See Venice, the city of wetness. Point and laugh at the Tower of Pisa. And play with some dough in Napoli. People love us, but every so often a customer leaves a review that they weren't, they were disappointed or didn't have as much fun as they thought. So here at Romano Tours, we always remind our customers, if you're sad now, you might still feel sad there, okay? You understand that makes sense? will take you to the most beautiful places on earth. Hike the cliffs of the Amalfi Coast. Fish with the nets in Sorrento. Do this. I don't know. <laughs> but remember, you're still going to be you on vacation. <laughs> if you are sad where you are, and then you get on a plane to Italy, <laughs> you 
in Italy will be the same sad you from before, just in a new place. Does that make sense? There's a lot of vacation can do. Help you unwind, see some different looking squirrels. But it cannot fix deeper issues, like how you behave in group settings or your general baseline mood. That's a job for incremental lifestyle changes sustained over time. I want to be very clear about what we can do for you. We can take you on a hike. We cannot turn you into someone who likes hiking. We can take you to the Italian Riviera. We cannot make you feel comfortable in a bathing suit. We can provide the zip line. We cannot give you the ability to say we and mean it. You're not your sister. We can provide you with a wine tasting tour of Tuscany. We cannot change why you drink or the person you become when you do, okay? I'm sorry, but it's true. And our friendly tour guides are happy to take your picture. But remember, the pictures you're in are going to have you in them. And if you don't like how you look back home, it's not going to get any better on a gondola. Right before we went in the Vatican, he took my face in his hands and he said, if you feel bad about yourself in a church back home, the Vatican is 100% wall-to-wall church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we went for 20 minutes and then uh, we went back to the hotel and watched Paddington too. Yeah, the best. <laughs> Love the Vatican. <laughs> this may sound rude, but I'm trying to temper expectations. I hate seeing people beat themselves up on my toys. It really gets to me. And please, if you and your partner are having trouble connecting, we guarantee our tour will not help. <laughs> if you don't want to touch each other at home, be reminded, in Italy, you will have those same bodies and thoughts. <laughs> You're not blindfold, strawberry eaters in Mamaronek, why start in Sicily? <laughs> Look, a day is a long time to feel happy <laughs> for all of it. Most of us get 45 minutes, if we're lucky. And that's our motto at Romano Tours. Romano Tours. We make memories. I thought you'd appreciate that. When we look to vacations, not to simply be a break from our day-to-day life, but to somehow complete us, to somehow make us whole, or to make us, uh, to save us even to improve us, to save us. That's what they're joking about. And it's a, I, I think it's, it's absolutely brilliant. But today we're not going to talk. We've talked specifics yesterday. Remember the first day we talked about uh, little r religion, a small r religion. We talked about enoughness being our euphemism for justification. We, the, uh, we, then on the next day we talked about performancism and busyness. Performancism being this idea, it's, it's again, it's a translation of justification by works of the law, the sort of little l uh, capricious laws of the world, but it's the, uh, the sense that there's no distinction between your accomplishments and yourself. Uh, then uh, yesterday we talked about how this actually plays out in detail, and what I, the, one of the the things I wanted to do in the book was not just talk about these things globally, but to talk about them locally and how they operate right now. It means that the book will probably not date terribly well, though I think that the core factors involved will remain uh, very much static, like it or love it. But um, And uh, one of the things people ask me about afterwards is like, well, why didn't you talk about sports? <laughs> 
uh, or why don't you talk about celebrity? And there are all sorts of other seculosities with which we are engaged. Yes, Christians are very much engaged in all of these. And the ones I was writing about it were the ones that I felt I could speak about honestly uh, from within. So, so with humility rather than from above with sort of condescension. And uh, I just don't like sports that much. So, <laughs> I mean, I do love, you know, go, go who's. We had a, an amazing sort of slightly religious experience with basketball this year in my town. So um, be that as it may. Um, so today I wanted to talk about how this relates to the church and how it relates to you and me. Um, because, but, you know, there's a real... Um, contradiction here, because if seculosity refers to religious energy that's directed at secular or horizontal targets, why talk about church? You would presume that capital R religion is kind of immune or just exempt from our diagnosis here. But as I sort of hinted at yesterday, the tragic irony of Jesus land you know, we're living in vacation land right now, or is Maine vacation land or is Michigan vacation land? I don't... Maine? Maine has vacation land on its, on its uh, license plate, but there's a poster in our cabin that refers to Michigan as vacation land. And as Camp Arcadia is a place where you can go to hear stimulating talks on vital problems. I love that. I hope these have been stimulating talks on vital problems. So uh, anyway, uh, the Jesus land is the way I describe perhaps a little facetiously or with some whimsy, I thought, um, but it's not meant to be terribly flattering, um, a catch-all for the bastardized form of Protestantism or evangelical Protestantism that, we, that dominates most of the spiritual landscape in the West, and if not by, yes, by numbers, but also in the popular imagination. When people make fun of Christians in our context, what they're usually making, what they have in mind, are Baptists. That's sort of indisputably true. They're not really talking about, I mean, non-denominational perhaps today, but a lot of non-denominational churches you find out are actually Baptists. You ever notice that? What? You're, I'm not in the South, because there they laugh at Baptist jokes all the time. Uh, Anyway, the tragic irony here is that the, the faith of Jesus land tends to resemble its secular replacements more than the real thing. But I'm not here again to take just pot shots from without. I think that, that Lutheranism is not exempt from it. It's not a religion, by the way. <laughs> but uh, we, we, I've talked with enough pastors in this context and enough parishioners to know that a lot of these factors apply. Now, you may have noticed that all the strands of seculosity we talked about yesterday and the ones I've mentioned in passing and the ones we just watched on the television, they all operate more or less identically in that sort of if you eat well enough, love well enough, parent well enough, stay busy enough, uh, have the enough uh, enlightenment in your politics, uh, you will be enough. And that is the promise at the heart of what we would call a religion of law. Every religion of law. And a religion of law is what every replacement religion ultimately is. A religion of law that says, if you do this, then this will happen. Again, a capital R religion of law bestows divine favor on those who conform to its conception of righteousness, those who act in accordance with the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots that God has laid out. That's how a religion of law works. A small r religion of law promises functional salvation to those who live up to its demands 
which are expressed more than often than not in the shoulds and oughts we infer from our shared ideals, like thou ought to be skinny. Thou ought to be influential. That's the big one right now. Thou ought to be authentic. Of course, the second you're trying to be authentic, you know, it's like being humble. Thou ought to be effortlessly sophisticated. That's the big one now I hear a lot about, especially from uh, my female friends. If you want to be accepted, admired, respected, uh, or uh, there was a great article on a humor website. The headline was, Woman Hospitalized After Attempting Effortless Lifestyle. A 36-year-old woman was admitted to the emergency room this afternoon after several attempts at an effortless lifestyle. The incident occurred after a friend of a friend claimed she was heading to Tuscany for two weeks with only four simple essentials, one of which included a sundress that converted to a tablecloth for last-minute picnics (laughs) near San Gimignano. So it's not enough to to, to make life, uh, to be sophisticated. You have to look like you're not even trying, right? Now, there's a fundamental problem with all religions of law one with which we are well acquainted, and whatever form we encounter them, the problem does not reside in the content of the law itself, at least not by default. The problem resides in the human heart. Knowing what we should do or be does not give us the ability to do or be those things. Not when it really comes down to it. You see, religions of law may succeed in the short term because they appeal to our yearning for control, but they run out of steam or they run into a brick wall when confronted with the realities of human conflictedness. What I'm talking about is sin, Romans chapter 7. Furthermore, as anyone who's ever uh, tried to hang their self-regard on a target of seculosity finds out, enough turns out to be a mirage, ever retreating into the distance. And in fact, the closer it feels like you're getting to it, the further it actually goes away. This is why the, the people you know, the higher they climb on the ladder, you know, this is why really beautiful people feel their blemishes more acutely. Or if you talk to people who seem to have a ton of money, they, they, they're very, very aware that they don't have as much as that person. You know what I'm talking about? The higher you climb on the ladder of whatever ladder you care about, the further apart, the, the rungs don't stop, they just get further apart. And, but to the outside eye, it's like you can see it's only tiny, minuscule things. Anyway, that's not that important. But if you, do you guys, anyone here know what Minecraft is? I think anyone who's, anyone who's been around a, a, a teenage or boy in the last 10 years knows what Minecraft is. Uh, Marcus Persson, he's the creator of Minecraft. He's a Swedish guy. I don't know if he was catechized Lutheran. Uh, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Shortly after selling his company for billions of dollars and getting what he calls everything, he tweeted to the world that he was, quote, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Now, if you've read any interview with Elon Musk in the last two years, you know the same thing applies to that guy. He's a fascinating case study, by the way. I kind of, I love him. I love Elon Musk because he doesn't seem to have a filter when it comes to his emotions. He talks about being crushingly lonely and asking the interviewer if he knows anyone that he can date. Like, in the middle, it's like all of this stuff, space travel, Tesla. I mean, I'm, there's no one to, you know, in the bed with me at night. I'm miserable. It's like, I love you, man. That's all you needed to say. That's all you need. And can I please have a Tesla? You see, religions of law, they always promise wholeness and peace. But as everything I've tried to 
you know, demonstrate makes clear, they ultimately deliver anxiety, self-consciousness, and loneliness. And so a culture that is drunk or intoxicated or simply uh, soaked in seculosity will be a culture of despair. And that's what we're living in is a culture of despair. You see it in the way people have political debates. You see it especially in the mental health crises, and you see it most in the opioid crisis, uh, but you see it most, most uh, clearly in the suicide epidemic that is, um, will only, is only going to get worse, by the way. Now, Christianity, I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to tell you, it purports something completely different. It tells of a God who is not shy about handing down law, the law, Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, and yet it doesn't end with the law. As Matt has made clear, after the law has robbed at least Christ's hearers of any chance of achieving divinely sort of appointed enoughness on their own steam, Christ hints at the possibility, he doesn't just hint at it, of what C.S. Lewis always called the deeper magic. Jesus says that what's impossible with humans is possible with God. In other words, we may not be able to answer the question of our own not-enoughness, but that doesn't mean there isn't an answer. Of course, it's one thing to just say such things, and it's another thing to embody them. In his death, we believe that Christ suffered the full weight of human sin, and by his resurrection, he extends pardon, righteousness, and eternal life even to those who put him there. The cross declares that the guilt and shame we spend our days trying in vain to expiate via sweat and spending and scapegoating, that 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 guilt and shame is absolved, past, present, and yes, even future. To put this in less conventionally religious way, if so much of our energy and so much of our suffering is caught up in the quest for self-justification, it should not be surprising that this same dilemma finds a direct response in the central thrust of the Christian religion. Now, my sense is, unfortunately, as any form of Christianity that does not take justification seriously and that treats it as an antiquated, and this is what you, you know, in, at least in my denomination, you start using words like justification uh, and atonement and things like that, and people say you're, 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 that's antiquated. Or um, you, what's the great, the great Krister uh, Stendhal, the Swedish bishop, he wrote a, um, an article in, the, I think, the 1950s, and he basically, what he was basically saying is that we've projected, Luther projected onto um, St. Paul all this terrified conscience stuff, and the modern form of that, and that launched this whole thing called the New Perspective on Paul, which I don't need to talk to you about, but it's, uh, it did, you sometimes hear people, especially when they're critiquing uh, Lutheranism of the more orthodox variety, what they say is that Luther had great answers to 16th century problems. You ever heard that phrase? He had great answers to 16th century problems. But we're not, answer- we're not asking those questions. We don't have those same problems anymore. And I think Luther was actually talking about Jesus' answer maybe. You could, you could say Jesus had great answers to first century problems. If you want, They don't go there. But what this entire book is trying to tell you, that people aren't worried about their righteousness before God. That that's not, if I, if I pull some guy off the street uh, or I go to Arcadia Bluffs and I sit down with someone who's just played golf, but what's really keeping you up at night? Uh, it's not that they're afraid of hell and damnation. 
This book is basically an extended tract on saying, no, no, Mr. Stendhal, Bishop. Uh, people are just have, are living with just as terrified a conscience as ever. And that those 16th century problems are 21st century problems. The problem of justification. How do I justify my life? How do I achieve some sense of enoughness? How do I live a life of value? And where, where do I get my purpose, my meaning, my community, my salvation? But what is, how is that question of not enoughness? How does it receive an answer? That is the animating uh, there are other an- questions. The question of death is a big one. But uh, that is the great animating question right now, I think. And I think social media especially is one enormous evidence uh, locker. What are those lock? You know what, what those lockers where they in police shows where they keep all the evidence? That's what social media is when it comes to justification being something people actually deal with. Anyway, um, what are we talking about? You see, Christianity at its core is not a religion of just grace. It's a religion of law and grace, which is to say, though, it is a religion of grace since grace has no meaning apart from the law, meaning the upright have no need of clemency, the healthy no need of a doctor, and the righteous no need of a savior. The seculosity of Jesus' land takes root when law supplants grace as Christianity's final word, as God's final word to you. Or we, when we subvert the hymn, the great, you know, amazing grace. It's, it's, I once was lost, but now I'm found, so I better stay found, right? Uh, we start asking ourselves, if Jesus caught and embraced me when I fell off the ladder of life, which is usually why people become Christians, then why does it feel like I'm on a new ladder now? Why do I get the creeping suspicion that I'm not a good enough Christian, The seculosity of Jesus' land seeps in when church turns into yet another performancist venue to establish our enoughness rather than the only reliable place to receive it. Sometimes people, you know, when you talk about this, the message of justification by faith, they say, well, that's, that's important, but let's, why don't we get to the next stuff? And I believe that the pain, the wound in the heart, the power of sin, the devil, the world is so strong. And at least it, maybe it's being exacerbated by cultural forces that I've tried to outline. But it's so strong that we cannot risk a Sunday. We cannot risk someone having contact with the church without hearing about this. That's, you know, and, and I, you come under fire for that. Now, one of the chief ways that Christians, how does this happen? Because it doesn't happen by people getting up in the morning and saying, you know what, I want to pervert the good news of the gospel and make people drown them with millstones and make sure that everyone experiences Christianity as a neurosis-inducing, neurotic thing that they want to run from the hills from and, again, move to Jackson Hole or wherever, right? No one does that. No, Christianity morphs into seculosity almost always under the heading of transformation. As exciting as the prospect of transformation may be, when it takes center stage in a person's spiritual life, it has a tendency, in fact, like a gravitational pull, it swallows up grace and turns Christianity into a vehicle of anxiety and exhaustion. Now, what do I mean? Well, conservative or traditionally reminded Christians tend to talk about transformation in personal terms. Whereas more progressive Christians usually frame transformation systemically or collectively. But whether the goal is personal holiness or social progress, the same dynamic holds sway. Faith serves as a means to an end, a spiritual method of producing such and such result, right? Let's look at the more conservative or evangelical end of the spectrum. 
you know, I think, I think considered as a movement, American evangelicalism often deserves its reputation as a neurotic, moralistic, anti-intellectual purveyor of bad movies. <laughs> and worse music. Um, but like anyone, actual evangelicals rarely fit that mold. Um, you know, I, I, I consider myself a small e evangelical. I like the, in the German and the Lutheran sense of good good news. Uh, but spend any t- and spend any time at a megachurch. I've spent some time at these places. And as Matt talked about the other day, and you'll encounter radical humility and generosity. You'll meet people who've adopted tons of kids, who are foster parents, who are really out there loving people and doing incredible things. And you'll, you'll encounter that just as often as the caricatured rigidity or naivete. So I want to tell you, at the risk of heresy, I actually personally don't find Baptists to be significantly more judgmental than any other group of human beings. And yet, in its emphasis on personal transformation, American evangelicalism often seems more American than evangelical. I've run into far too many former or recovering evangelicals to discount the deep-seated and oppressive performancism that often is at work in those churches, where what matters more than what God has done for you is what you can and indeed need to do for God. When faith is too too tightly uh, tied to changes in behavior, it is put at odds and in competition with other spiritual products and the results they yield. And if your faith is only important or true as, as so far as it creates good people, well, then we should all become Mormons. They're much better than you. They are. They give away more money. They do more good works. You should be laughing. Go meet some Mormons. They're great. They will outdo you in the good works department, like, like young women outdo young men in gr- the grade department today at most high schools. Christianity itself, though, when that happens, it enters the marketplace, and it starts to resemble a self-improvement scheme on spiritual steroids. Uh, only as reliable as the personal growth it may have produced, which we know from both experience and from Scripture is not always that reliable. We get in this situation. It's a husband telling a wife or a man telling a woman, look, I can't promise I'll change, but I can promise I'll pretend to change. The dissonance between who we feel we're supposed to be as new creations and who we are actually hurts, and it can prompt the cruelest kinds of rationalizations, can it not? This kind of theology creates an environment of suspicion where otherwise nice people start monitoring one another's devotion, usually for the sake of propping up their own. And what was once joyful devolves into something joyless, a driver of added exhaustion rather than a respite from it, which is the opposite of Christ's invitation, come unto me all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. You can understand, therefore, why more and more people would be sleeping in on Sunday morning. Ironically enough, a lot of people leave uh, evangelicalism and move into sort of progressive Christianity, which is a real thing in this country, um, they, because they see it as the opposite of what was, they perceive as the oppressively individualistic and hypocritically moralistic uh, form of the faith that burned them out. So they move towards an outwardly liberal expression of Christianity that emphasizes social transformation or progress. And this is the other way that Christianity turns from a religion of grace into one of law. In reaction to the larger and more conservative branches of the faith, believers trade one set of imperatives for another. They shift their focus, again, from the individual to the collective. So instead of sermons on the ills of sexual promiscuity or greed, preachers target racial prejudice, xenophobia, and the excesses of capitalism. 
while these things like sexual promiscuity and greed are not unimportant, in fact, in many cases, they're very important. The church, when it becomes a focused on social transformation, it is left with little to say to the perpetrators themselves, the sinners in the equation. Forgiveness, if offered to such villains at all, only comes after protracted displays of self-flagellation. It has to be earned. An acceptance into the community of saints quietly depends on an assent to common convictions uh, on right versus wrong rather than an admission of common hypocrisy and a shared need for mercy. And so again, you get into churches where people are still policing one another's doctrine. It's just the content of that doctrine that's shifted. So stick around long enough and the question will come up, are you doing enough to bear witness to God's love of the least of these? Are you doing enough to love your neighbor? I don't know. It begins to function, not, the church functions not as a place predominantly of comfort, but of challenge. This is, by the way, this is why it's easy to take pot shops at American evangelicalism. It's a lot, like people get mad at me when I talk about this stuff. The basic aim and method of this branch does not differ, though, from its conservative counterparts. Tell the people in the pew what they need to do so that they'll go out there and do it. In other words, perform, damn it. Instead of loving your neighbor, you start to hate her for not evincing enough compassion. And yourself too. Once faith and social justice become interchangeable, a funny thing often happens. Dutiful activists often realize that the church actually isn't that efficient when it comes to purveying progress the bureaucracy, the institutional inertia, but mainly the God stuff seems to get in the way. I could, I could do a lot more good if I just stopped dealing with the metaphysical. I just really got my hands dirty. And so all of a sudden, you, people are just bailing. And again, what binds these expressions of, of, of Jesus' land together also is they restrict God's purposes entirely to the here and now so that they render any longer view incomprehensible. Christianity becomes just a means to an earthly end, almost a way of using God to fix the world or yourself. If Jesus' land, Christianity largely operates apart from the transcendent realities that have defined the faith throughout the millennia, meaning the life to come, life eternal, life the saints in the past. Whatever the case, life both in and outside of Jesus' land is no longer seen as a veil of tears to be endured uh, until the long-awaited twinkling of an eye transformation, so much as a game to be won, which everyone loses. So this is in practice is actually the difference between being um, uh, surprised by moments of personal and social transformation rather than coming to expect them. So thou shalt transform becomes our imperative du jour, no different in, in impact from the edicts we receive very every other area of seculosity, which is anxiety, narcissism, loneliness, and despair. And this does not mean that Christians are somehow prohibited from valuing or seeking after progress in their life or in the world, just that genuine transformation is the fruit of grace and not its precondition. Put non-religiously, we only truly change when we no longer feel we have to in order to be loved. I'll repeat that. We only truly change when we no longer feel we have to in order to be loved. So that's what makes Christianity a religion of grace. It's essential revelation of a God who meets us in both our individual and collect and collective sin, 
with a love that knows no bounds, the kind of love that lays down its life for its enemies. Christianity is not a roadmap to engineering spiritual enoughness, but the glorious proclamation that on account of Christ, you and I are enough right now, right here, before we do or say anything. What I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to make an argument for in this book is that Christianity at its sustaining core is not a religion of good people getting better, but of real people coping with their failure to be good. I see incredible, I'm going to read to you uh, an amazing story about this, but I want to, there's a great book that came out about the great work that the church is actually doing that's not really getting much uh, uh, press. There's a, it's a book of photographs by a photographer named Chris Arnade. It's called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And this is a guy who worked in the South Bronx after uh, leaving Wall Street after the recession. And he started taking pictures of people. He wanted, I mean, it's a little bit like trying to figure out the divides in the country, but he was more interested in really talking to the American poor and not the, the black poor, the white poor, the Latino poor, ever the poor. He wanted to meet. And so he ends up spending a lot of times, guess where? At McDonald's. <laughs> he says that the two places where poor people really hang out and where if you really want to know what's going on in back row America is what he calls it, you go to McDonald's and you go to churches, storefront churches, or inner city churches. If you really want to know people, go to McDonald's. And so this is, I'm trying to bring it a little full circle for you with McDonald's. This is what he says. He writes this, and he's an, he's an, he, he starts out this, uh, this journey as an, uh, as an atheist, and he ends the, uh, as, as, as sort of an, a, a hopeful agnostic. He says, for many back row Americans, the only places that regularly treat them like humans are churches. The churches are everywhere, small churches that have come in and taken over a space and lighted up on Sundays and Wednesdays. These back row Americans walk inside the church and immediately they meet people who get them. The preachers and congregants inside may preach to them, even judge their past decisions, but they don't look down on them. They have walked the walk and they know the SHIT they are going through, not from a book, not from a movie, not from an article, not from a study, but from their own lives and the lives of their friends. They look like them and they get them. There are rules to follow if you join, but they don't require having your paperwork in order or having a proper ID. They don't require getting grilled about this and that. They say, enter as you are, letting forgiveness wash away a past that many want gone. You are welcome as long as you try. The churches understand the streets. They understand everyone is a sinner and everyone fails. The rest of the world, the courts, the hospitals, the rehab clinics, the welfare office, police stations, and even some of the nonprofits and schools, especially the universities that won't even let you on campus without the police being called, doesn't understand that. That cold, secular world of the well-intentioned is a distant and judgmental thing. Isn't that beautiful? Now I'm going to read to you what, uh, again, and I talk about AA being the most wonderful example of what church looks like in this uh, scenario. Uh, but I wanted to also read to you um, the kind of, uh, the, the, where I would hope that uh, refugees from Jesus land and you and I, in fact, would end up at some, somewhere like a Sinners Anonymous. That would be my dream. I'm going to read to you, uh, to tell you a little bit about, you know, I guess, no, Langston Hughes, who's a wonderful sort of Harlem Renaissance 
uh, writer and playwright. Uh, and in 1958, he published a very short story that traces the shape of grace uh, in actual life with astounding clarity and richness. It was called Thank You, Ma'am. It's three pages. You can Google it and find it, but you may not need to after this. There are only two characters in the story, a boy named Roger and a, quote, large woman with a large purse named Luella Bates Washington Jones. Luella is walking home late at night when Roger runs up and tries to steal her purse. Before he can get away, Luella grabs the boy and won't let him go. He's in for it, we think. He's caught. She seems like the kind of lady people used to refer to as a battle axe. Luella asks Roger why he tried to snatch her bag, and after telling a couple of lies, which she calls him on, he comes clean. He wanted money to buy a pair of blue suede shoes. You see, Hughes wants to unburden us of our sympathy for this boy. Roger wasn't acting out of hunger or desperation. He's not a victim. He was acting out of greed. Roger assumes that Luella is getting ready to haul him into jail, but instead she brings him home with her, washes his face, and tells him that she knows what it's like to want things you can't get. And then, in lieu of a lecture, Luella cooks him a meal, complete with dessert. Her unexpected behavior has a strange effect on Roger. When they entered her apartment, Luella had laid her purse on the daybed where he could easily grab it and bolt. But curiously enough, he finds he no longer wants to. Instead, he hears himself ask Luella if she needs someone to go to the store to get her milk. She demurs, filling his plate again, and I'm reading to you now from Hughes. The woman did not ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, as they ate, she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late, what the work was like and how all kinds of women came in and out, blondes, redheads, and Spanish. Then she cut him off. She cut him a half of her 10-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. When they were finished eating, she got up and said, Now here, take this $10 and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the streets as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something other than, Thank you, ma'am, to Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones, but although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that as he turned at the foot of the barren stoop and looked up at the large woman in the door. And then she shut the door. <clears throat> I'm reading from my book now. What Roger receives from Luella is the opposite of what he deserved. He broke the law in no uncertain terms, yet Luella responds with warmth, welcome, and even reward. Her reaction lies so far outside the logic of this for that as to be absurd. Isn't she afraid of being taken advantage of, we wonder? What about consequences? Aren't her actions irresponsible? Luella doesn't ignore Roger's transgression. In fact, she calls him out, and she doesn't shrug it off. But nor does she punish him, as she would have every right to do. Because she sees herself in the boy, I know what it's like to want things you can't get, the intervention she offers goes beyond mere restraint, reaching into the depths of motivation. The counterintuitive treatment he experiences inspires a change of heart in the boy sitting there in her apartment. He no longer wants to do wrong. Luella 
bears the cost of Roger's misdeed, financial as well as relational, and it makes all the difference. In a few short pages, and this is three pages, Hughes paints an indelible picture of something other than retribution. He captures in narrative form the only force with the power to inspire what the laws of control and enoughness command, the kind of love that succeeds where judgment fails, the deeper magic of grace. Take note. Good behavior does not bring Roger into contact with Mrs. Luella Washington Bates Jones. And it won't bring us there either. Only bad behavior does the trick. Poor performance, not flying colors, failure, which is good news for those among us whose scores on the test of life keep getting worse. Or even those of us who keep getting ensnared by the false promise of seculosity despite knowing better. Glimpsed through the lens of a cross, what looks like the end may be only the beginning, the birth pangs of a new pathology, one of mercy for failed teachers and their flailing students, for lonely pastors and their exhausted congregants, for addicts and their enablers, Christians and non-Christians, you and me. The end. But there's still a conclusion. You have to buy the book to read the conclusion. Thank you. <clears throat> That's where the book ends, not with another list of actually of things to do or things to feel like you're failing at, but with a um, proclamation of what has been done and a, for, and a, few, a few predictions and a few descriptions. Uh, and I do hope, I'm happy to sign your books, by the way. I'll, I can be up here for a little bit after this. Uh, but thank you for letting me share this work with you. Um, I've been excited. I, would, I wanted some time for question and answers, but I've heard that this room doesn't really work for that. So you're welcome to talk to me during the next 24 hours. I'll be around, and I would love to. And thank you again for your hospitality and your kindness and your grace, especially towards me and my family this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia, a Lutheran family resort and retreat center on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. For more episodes or to learn more about camp, please visit www.camp-arcadia.com.